My name is Jill Phillips and I'm the creator of Who's Shoes, a popular approach to co-production. I was named as an HSJ100 wildcard and want to help give a voice to others talking about their ideas and experiences. I'll be chatting with people from all sorts of different perspectives, walking in their shoes. If you are interested in the future of healthcare and like to hear what other people think, or perhaps even contribute at some point, Whose Shoes Wildcard is for you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Wildcard Whose Shoes. A key theme that has run through the whole podcast series is the importance of listening to people and believing what they say, and specifically listening to patients. Today I'm looking forward to chatting to Rachel Power, the Chief Executive of the Patients Association. I've never spoken to Rachel before, but we've been introduced by our mutual friend Yvonne Newbold. Yvonne says there's a lot of synergy between the work of the Patients Association and the work that I do with Whose Shoes. And when Yvonne says that someone would be an amazing podcast guest, I sit up and listen. Just look at what happened when she introduced me to Rachel Tomlinson, episode 27. It is still the most listened to podcast in the entire series. So welcome to another Rachel. I don't know what the collective noun is for Rachel's, but there are quite a few of you now in the series. I'm really looking forward to hearing about you as a person and the important work that you do and the difference it's making. Hi, Jill. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So do you want to tell you a little bit about myself and our organisation first? That would be amazing. Yes, please. I'm very happy to be the Chief Executive of the Patient Association and I've been there for five years. And we are a non-disease, non-condition Pacific charity, so we deal with issues that affect all patients. And uniquely, we are a, a membership organisation, so patients, families and those interested in health and care sign up as, as members. And, and we do a variety of different work. We have a national free phone helpline, which patients, their carers and their loved ones can ring to get advice and information and a bit of signposting and support about what the next steps might be in accessing the healthcare that they need. We run a lot of projects and we run a lot of focus groups where we bring patients together to talk to them about specific issues within health and social care to make sure that we get their views and that when I'm speaking or a member of my team are speaking, we're speaking with the views that we've heard directly from patients. So our strategy is very much about patient partnership and it's around patient partnership and the design and delivery of services because we believe passionately that if you involve patients in designing a service and you involve them from the beginning and you involve them in a way that's really meaningful, then you will design a service that works for patients, which will then work for healthcare professionals and will aid really good governance and really show the way to listening and truly listening to patients. But it'll also make sure that those services are safer and better for patients. We also do a lot of work talking to government. So we we take what we hear from patients and we speak to NHS and we speak to government about what we believe patients need and want. And I think we, we bring everything back to, to the individual patient in that, you know, the really important thing is what matters to that individual and how that person can live their best lives. So I'm delighted to be here. I'm really delighted that Yvonne Newbold um, introduced me because uh, any friend of Yvonne's is a friend of mine. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to chatting more. 
that's great, Rachel. It's lovely to start the conversation and to hear about the work that you're doing. And it'd be interesting in terms of co-production. Is that a buzzword? Does it matter? And I think for me, you've just described co-production perfectly in terms of working properly with people and what matters to them and helping people take their voice right through to the people that can actually listen and do something about it, ultimately the government and policymakers. And that's a, a very important bridge to be building for people. Yeah. I think there's just so many words, isn't there? Yeah. There's so many words out there and there's co-production, there's patient engagement. And I think I could probably list about 20 of them. And and we use the word partnership because the way I think about it is that if you ask somebody at the end of the street what partnership means, they'll understand that (laughs) more than maybe they'd understand if you're not involved in health and care, what co-production looks like and what it is. And and sometimes we get very bogged down in the jargon of the language that we're we're talking about. So, yeah, absolutely. This is about co-production. But it's also about that shared decision making. And part of what we, we've done work on in this year is understanding the barriers to shared decision making. Because I think that if you can get that individual relationship between the healthcare professional and the patient working really, really well, you'll get partnership and you'll get co-production. But it's it's that that confidence of the healthcare professional to give the power to a patient to be able to do this properly and to be able to work in partnership or co-production or shared decision making. We have a lived experience advisory panel and I brought them together to help guide me in, in the work that we're doing within the patient association. And it's really interesting working with them. And, and we recruited people who, who we really felt hadn't been listened to by the system and who had experienced really difficult experiences as a result of their interaction with the system. And I suppose they would be people that you could describe as those people at risk of inequalities and at risk of equality of access of service. And when I talked to them, we've had to pull together a jargon-busting dictionary because the language that we all use, that I, you know, language that I use sometimes, and they'll look at me and go, what do you mean by that? So I think if we are to get this right, we have to start talking in plain English and thinking about the kind of health literacy age so that we can bring everyone with us on the journey of of partnership. So already I can see why Yvonne Newbold has brought us together because I do loads of work around jargon and jargon busting. And I think to have generally, I guess, in our work, to have little simple tests as to what is meaningful. So like Andrea Sutcliffe and her mum test yeah, um, when she was chief exec of the... When she was at CQC, when she did, when she was at CQC, and is this good enough for your mum? That's right. And that, that's a really good test. And before I joined the Patient Association, I worked in children's hospice care and regularly had to use that test in my head when we were looking at services and we were evaluating services. And, you know, we changed it slightly because it was, is this good enough for my child? You know, would I be happy if my child was experiencing the service? And if you're able to answer yes and genuinely answer yes, then you know it's a good service. But I think it's back to, you know, we've heard so much through the pandemic. We've we've seen such transformation. You know, we hear about how people access their GP services. Should it be online? Should it be face-to-face? What should it be? How should it work? But it's all about the individual. It's all about doing shared decision-making with that individual and, and going back and saying, okay, so Jill, 
we need to see you what what matters to you what's going to work with you because digital is great but so is face to face and it's about the individual and we've got to understand who is that person and what what is it they want to achieve in their lives and I think that brings me on to you know how do we measure the experience of receiving a service because I think quite often somebody described it to me the other day it's really interesting and it was a gentleman who a few years ago had quite severe mental health issues going on and this is his description and he was chronically obese and he was being told they had to lose weight in order to get a treatment and he was saying you know the GP was completely right and the consultant was right he had to lose weight but what would happen is he'd be told to do that and then he'd be kind of let off to do his own thing and within five ten minutes he'd kind of get this text saying how was your appointment was your appointment on time? <laughs> and he'd say, he'd go back and he'd say, yeah, it was great. And he said, I was sitting at McDonald's eating a burger because I was so freaked out by everything they were telling me. And then I was just left <laughs> on my own when I went out. So, you know, I think we have to move this on to measuring what's important to people. Yeah. And how, if I go and see a consultant or have a treatment in hospital, how doing that allows me to live my life to the full in the way that I want to live my life. I love that. Yeah, not measure the success of service, because all those things were important. But um, the big thing is the importance of did it make a difference to an individual's life? That's striking so many different sort of resonances with me. I mean, people will say to me, oh, you had a Who Shoes workshop. Was it a good workshop? And I'll think, well, it was good fun. People engaged with it. We had some cake. We had some great conversations. We've got a fantastic visual record of the session. But until something actually happens differently as a result of it, I don't know whether it was really a good session because you look back in the future and decide, wow, look what's happened as a result yeah. of that. And then it becomes a good session. Yeah. And it's a really difficult thing for any organisation, isn't it? Because it's something we're looking at at the Patient Association very much. It's how do you measure the impact of the difference you've achieved? Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of survey fatigue out there as well. And, you know, I, I remember working when I was working in hospice care and par parents would tell me that, you know, they'd get five or six different kind of feedback surveys after different appointments. So in the end, people are just going, yeah, that's good. That was good. This is good. We're asking too much. Are we asking the right questions? How are we how are we getting those questions right so that we can go back and say, if I leave a hospital appointment now and somebody says to me, how did it go? It's probably fine. But when do you ask me in six months time, what difference did that have in your life? Yes. What did it allow you to do differently? Yeah. And there's a lot of stories out there where, where if that conversation has happened with patients and that they might make a different choice. So if you're doing that shared decision making and you're looking at what's it called again, brand, the benefits, the benefits, the risks, the alternatives and the do nothing way of doing shared decision making, often patients might choose the do nothing because the conversation has been right and they've been able to have. And prime example is a consultant up in Scotland, I think it was, and your your readers probably know this, but it was a woman about to have a woman in her late eighties about to have her knee replaced. And when she was leaving after a pre-op, she was like, oh, that's great. I can go out and do my garden again and I can tend to my... And the consultant said, no, you're, you're not going to be able to, to do that level of gardening, like on your knees and everything. And she went, well, why am I having the operation? Wow. <laughs> like, that was the only reason I'm having the operation. So yeah, we really have to 
And and when we did some work with healthcare professionals around shared decision making, one of the things that they came up as the barriers, and they were really positive about it, but one of the barriers was having enough time to do it. And the other barrier that came up quite a lot was IT systems and how there isn't one place that has the whole record of the individual in a holistic way. So you can look at the whole person. So I, I do think that that's something that NHS could really work on and making sure that IT systems work well to allow shared decision making to happen. Yeah. Honestly, there's so many different threads here. You know, it's fantastic. Sorry, am I going off all over the place on you? <laughs> No, well, I love people who go off all over the place. That's the whole point, isn't it? And the trouble is I go off all over the place. And if you tried to kind of like map what's going on and the, the different, we talk about lemon light bulbs and so on. But you've talked about survey fatigue, and I think that's fascinating. And I think for me, it's about people having the chance to say at the right point what matters to them. So, for example, how things interrelate. And one of the most interesting bits of feedback that I got involved in was a debriefing or whatever you might like to call it, reflections after a birth. And it wasn't a complaint. Mm. So often people think in terms of, you know, something happens and, well, perhaps you should make a complaint about that. And someone, for whatever reason, chooses to or not, and then it becomes a complaint and it's all that adversarial kind of language. But this was just ahead of midwifery who was really keen to listen to what really hadn't been a great story but I think the important thing was how everything linked together and how one thing led to another thing and then they came up with an actual action plan based on that story and like picking up on the nuances in it and the things that will make a difference to to lots of women and families but perhaps aren't in the bracket of this is what went wrong and let's explore that and let's probably justify or defend that rather than a proper conversation about learning. And I think that's it. That's what I was going to say. It's about the learning. And majority of patients who ring our helpline are their family members and just want to know that things will be different and they want to be listened to, but actively listened to and know that by raising it, so I think we could avoid a lot of the complaints process if at the very beginning people genuinely felt listened to and that that the system was trying to learn from the mistakes or or what has happened. Because most people don't want to go into the litigation system. They they get there because actually they're battling. And you imagine if something goes wrong for you in a treatment or for your family member and then you're faced with what you perceive, and probably rightly, that the system's not listening or not learning. And we've had this this year again with another maternity inquiry in East Kent. And, and you know, the very clear message coming out of this is we have to stop looking at individual. How do, how do we get hospitals across the board to pick up on the learnings that are being found in individual trusts? And in my time at the Patients Association, I think it's it's coming up to four different inquiries that, are, you know, are all horrendous outcomes for patients who have not been listened to. And in a lot of time, being gaslighted. And we really genuinely need to have get that culture. And there's something about the culture in these in these systems that isn't listening and I think that that brings me back to partnership because if we genuinely want to work in partnership and genuinely want to work in a shared decision way then that culture of openness and and integrity needs to be really part of that but I think partnership can help that 
because you know we need to work together hugely yeah because it's not it's not the patients and the nhs or the health and care system it's patients and the health and care system together and in a lot of cases you know health and care staff are our patients too and, and have worked extremely hard during the pandemic of course yeah, yeah. and interestingly I man one of our with the actual who shoes board game and scenarios one of the earlier scenarios very very simple i never wanted to make a complaint i just wanted to be listened yeah. to and it resonates so much with what you're you're saying rachel absolutely and it resonates completely we do work with a lot of patients and we do a lot of work with with nhs trusts around complaints management and that comes aloud loud and clear i just wanted to be listened to i want to know that there's a difference. I want somebody to hear my story and my story be used for the better of others. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But simple things are the things that make a difference. I think so much is overcomplicated. And it's not about, for me, the 200-page research report or the management report or something. It's picking up on those little things and actually doing something about it and joining stuff up more. I think we rely too much on stats as well. I think sometimes there's so much statistics about, you know, X amount of people said this was really good, X amount of people weren't happy. I think we need to get more into listening to the actual stories and really listen to patient stories and spend time, you know, because if you, you listen to one patient story, you can learn so much from it. It just sometimes for me feels like the more stats we look at, we forget that behind those stats are human beings and people with stories and with lives and lives that, that they may be waiting for a treatment and if you're waiting for a treatment then that has an impact on your ability to go to work it has an impact on your income we need to look at the whole holistic thing of what, what we need in place to help us live good lives and that's exactly where I'm thinking that the podcast episode that I recorded with Miles Sibley which I absolutely loved and he's talking very very similar Rachel in terms of data and how basically people measure things that are easy to measure because they're easy to measure but they're not necessarily the things that people need to know whereas patient stories storytelling it's harder to measure but he talks a lot about how patient stories patient experiences not only should have equal weight with medical stories but what I loved about it was why that's the case and he's he's very very clever in that he's reporting on that scientifically as evidence-based rather than just probably as I would from the heart that this is how things should be yeah so I'm hoping that this episode with you and the episode with Miles are going to be a bit of a pincer movement now in this healthcare space good good news to make the same kind of points yeah. but from different angles yeah so we've done quite a lot of work with colleagues in NHS where we've helped them by getting patient stories for them so if they want something to represent a change that they're achieving but I think the important thing is that we get the diversity of those patient voices as well so if we look back through the pandemic if we look back at what Sir Michael Marmot has reported over equity of access to health care and life expectancy in this country we have to be careful that that we hear those stories from those people that some people describe hard to reach which I don't agree with it's it's just that I don't think we try hard enough and we need to become part of people's communities and we need to understand their stories and we need to understand that we are more than just one thing 
there's there's different parts of our culture and our backgrounds and our our day to day living that form who I am as a whole person. But we've got to get to those voices and really hear those diverse voices and understand what they need from healthcare service, because without that, we will continue to have this issue of equality of access to services. And and back to the very beginning of our conversation, my lived experience advisory panel are. Or, you know, you're talking about accessibility of language or jargon busting dictionaries. If we can get those stories and really try to get systems to work for people who haven't been heard, then then we've got a great job ahead of us. You know, I like when Amanda Pritchard started as chief executive, you can see her passion for wanting to get your decision making working and for partnership but you can no I can absolutely and then you but the system is so big and you know we've got all these integrated care systems and you know trying to get to 43 different systems and really kind of work with leaders in there to make sure that they really understand the value of partnership so what we're doing at the moment is we're putting together kind of a framework of methodology something I'm not sure what it's going to be called but it'll have the principles of yeah what good partnership looks like and we're working with patients and stakeholders to work that out then systems and locations can kind of pull that and go okay well if we're doing this we're doing it well if we're not doing a few of these things then we're not doing it so well and and you know I just think that'll be a really good way of being able to measure ourselves and how we do partnership because I think for the future we have to have partnership in place Sorry, calm down again. <laughs> Working with dogs and Irish people, Jill, this is your problem. And even <laughs> men turning up and digging up the road. <laughs> this is called the real world. And we've had dogs <laughs> on the podcast before. In fact, they're, they're becoming a bit of a favourite, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so coming back, we've had various bits of the conversation talking about health inequalities and whether people are hard to reach or whether it's just because we're not trying hard enough and so on. And I think for me, this runs through everything. So, for example, at the moment, I think we've mentioned just briefly digital inequalities and also just digital literacy, health literacy and so on. So I'm trying to do this through everything I'm doing. So we're developing a digital version of Who's Shoes at the moment around family integrated care. And in terms of our project team, there's one person and she was apologising. She was, oh, you know, I'm a technophobe and you'll have to bear with me. And I said to her, I am so glad to have you on the team because in all of these different contexts, I think, these are the people that we need to be developing for, the people who don't immediately jump into the jargon and don't immediately embrace all the, the words and the phrases and the technology that we take for granted it was hilarious actually because my husband's one of the IT people that is very very good and and working with us and so on and I said let's come up with some frequently asked questions and it was about what type of mobile web browsing app or whatever this tool is going to be and let's get the question right that would be a question if it's frequently asked that people might ask and let's get the answer helpful in terms of actually describing in English what it is they probably want to know rather than the history of Microsoft or (laughs) I run a digital coalition I chair it and it's about how to engage patients completely in the public in digital transformation 
That is so interesting. Yeah, there's some really good case studies in a report that's on our website at the moment. But one of the case studies is Nailsey in Somerset. And it was a project we were involved in years ago, but the local town hall took it over and kept running it. And it's about enabling people to feel that they have the knowledge to do digital. And what they did was they had volunteers and they had it on the high road. So the people could just pass, you know, they're going off doing the shopping, they can pop in, they can check out, they can have a chat with a volunteer, but they have a chat with a volunteer who isn't all techie with them. So it feels much more accessible. And they learn then how to do what they want to do on the internet and, and through digital around their own health as well. And I think we've got to learn to bring things more to people and use use places where people are already meeting to kind of build this this knowledge and skills. And of course, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. And I suppose one of the things that worries me about digital is if you're living in, you know, there's a lot of different things. If you're living in a rural area, you may not have strong digital, but you may not be able to afford Wi-Fi. So we've got to, you know, make sure that things remain accessible to people when we're moving towards digital. I love the way you talk about bringing things to people. And I think something I learned, obviously doing a bit of research before talking to you and you mentioned already, I think, the helpline. And I love the idea that you've got something that people can actually, as I understand, phone up and talk to a person yeah. on their own terms rather than it being a, a survey or a form to fill in or something that's basically on the terms of the person who puts it together, you know? Yeah, no. So a lot of our work in the helpline will be very much signposting because we are a non-disease and non-conditioned specific. But it'll also be helping people to find out where they can find the information about what next steps there are that they can take. So our website also has a range of resources from, you know, how to access your medical records to preparing for your GP appointment. There's a lot of information on there about shared decision making. So people make a choice as to whether they contact our helpline directly and have a chat with one of our advisors Mm -hmm. or they can use the advice resources on the website or they can do a bit of both. So they can read the advice information resource and then can ring the helpline to clarify some points or they can have the chat and then read the information. So it's about giving as much power as we can to the patient to take the control that they want to take in what's important to them at that moment in time. But the other thing we've done, Jill, is we've launched a campaigning and influencing section on our website because our members said actually they would like some support to do some influencing work locally and being such a small organization we can't do it so we've launched how to write your mp on our website so to allow people to be as involved as they want in a their own health and care but be the provision of health and care in their areas that's fantastic yeah so how should we pull this together rachel we've had a really great conversation here what do you think are the key things that you'd either like to emphasize or perhaps add at the end yeah so so the patient association we're just looking at the next year and you know we're going to have a really really tough winter and we know that it's going to be a tough winter for patients and we do appreciate how hard health and care staff and frontline staff have worked throughout the pandemic and continue to work but I suppose for me we are really hoping that there's really good and clear communication for patients over the next few months and the elective long waiting lists These all have a huge impact on people's ability to live their lives. So we'll be spending a lot of time closely trying to support and work closely with NHS England to make sure that people have the information that they need to keep well 
during these periods. And I think that's really important. But then we'll also be moving forward our strategy in the, in the hope that we can pilot in some areas a patient partnership approach and really kind of measure the impact and evaluate how that goes and how it works for both patients and healthcare professionals. And I suppose for me, the other thing that we'll be working really closely on for the next year is for anyone listening to the podcast, there's a numerous amount of reports on our website that we've done with healthcare professionals and patients around shared decision making and partnerships. So it'll be taking all of that forward because in the next three years, we really hope to have patient partnership as a core part of how the NHS structures its work. I love the fact that we mentioned Amanda Pritchard because, as I think you know, this podcast was originally like set up for Amanda Pritchard in that I was picked out as an HSJ wildcard as someone who perhaps should be listened to more by... Yeah, well done. <laughs> Thank you. But then I thought, well, really, it's not about what I think Amanda Pritchard should be listening to. It's really this amazing network of people that I've got, or in your case, people... is networking, isn't it? Through Yvonne, I've now met you. So what would the key messages either for Amanda Pritchard be, or perhaps for us to understand the incredibly difficult position that she's in as someone who's really wanting to embrace all these different messages and patient-centeredness, but in the real world at the moment of the NHS, which is just so, so difficult. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a difficult job, but I suppose I believe the evidence is there that if patient partnership approach is used in the design and delivery of any service that the NHS provides and we start with patients and we start understanding what patients need and and how they need it and we work closely with healthcare professionals in that area as well then we will design good services so I suppose that would be my key message is really push the patient partnership agenda and make sure that we work together patients and the healthcare system in partnership and as equal partners. Perfect. So patients and healthcare professionals working as equal partnerships and not getting too hung up about whether it's called co-production, <laughs> co-design or whatever. Let's just do it. Let's just do it. That's the answer. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If so, please subscribe now to hear more of these fascinating conversations on your favourite podcast platform. And please leave a review. I tweet as whose shoes. Thank you for being on this journey with me and let's hope that together we can make a difference.